श्री गौरी वैष्णव गुरु परंपरा की जाय गौर भक्त वृंद की जाय गौर प्रेमानंदे मॉर्निंग वी आर कंटिन्यूइंग आवर डिस्कशन फ्रॉम ब्रह्म संहिता टुडे वी कम टू वर्स 2 and i'll read the verse and we'll discuss it briefly and then we have one more initiation to give so we'll do that this morning brahma said sahasra patra kamalam gokulakyam mahat padam तत्कारणिकारम तद्धाम तरनंथंक्ष संभवम सहस्रपत्रकमलम कुकुलाक्यम महत्पदम In the previous verse Brahma described the Parameshwar Krishna we discussed how he is the Parameshwar in many respects the supreme controller controlling by love indeed controlled by love as well <clears throat> and how he's a person has form constituted of sat chit ananda he's the origin he has no origin cause of all causes so here we find in today's verse that he has a place that he stays also so the deity has been described and now the place of his domicile <clears throat> so some brief description of the of the dham and this will continue for three or four verses so the book in this way begins by describing the spiritual side hmm of the divide between material and material and spiritual hmm. just to give a little bit of a an overview of the contents which we won't be able to get to uh in in this uh, gathering this being our last class on the on the text um after describing the Uh, abode of krishna in several verses the text will segue then into a description of the uh, material domain hmm? so we've heard about the bhagwan and his internal shakti we're going to hear a little bit more about that internal shakti with regard to how it relates to his abode hmm? some details about the abode and the nature of the love there and so forth and then as i say the text segues into the expansion of another domain a separated so to speak domain where the two other shaktis are active the tatasta shakti and uh or the jeev shakti same idea and the maya shakti and correspondingly the manifestation of the supreme ishwar shri krishna who is the ishwar presiding over the maya shakti and the jeev shakti and the world of karma that their interaction constitutes hmm. then having described the deity his domain and the material world hmm. the text goes on to uh, glorify and kind of as i was saying the other day kind of locate in context govinda krishna the cowherd the parameshwar in relation to the other manifestations of divinity the mahavishnu the brahma shiva durga ganesh Hmm? their corresponding abodes 
and so on and so forth. Hmm? And then the text, uh, that's the bulk of the text, beautiful uh, prayers where the meter will change. Govindam Adi Purusham Tamaham Bajami is the the refrain hmm? uh, throughout uh, these uh, numerous verses and glorification of Govinda, giving him a context and so forth. And then the text finishes with a few verses about bhakti, the nature of bhakti, and a further brief but very beautiful description of, of Goloka, the rarity of attaining it, and so forth. Hmm? So, again, with today's verse, the beginning description of the abode of Sri Krishna, and it's referred to here as Mahatpadam, that uh, the great abode, the great that great um, residence. And while generally it is thought that Bhaikuntha is the supreme abode, hmm? the text here seeks to qualify the use of the word Mahatpadam that it might not be confused with Vaikuntha, and furthermore, that the readers might be edified, made aware of the fact that there is something about Vaikuntha. Hmm? This is a very extraordinary um, idea. Of course, of course, it because of course it, it corresponds with the idea that has already been explained, which is or also somewhat revolutionary. Hmm? That was is a focus of Gaudiya Vaishnavism, that Krishna's to Bhagavan Swayam, that Krishna is the fountainhead of all avatars, rather than Narayan. Hmm? Narayan appears to be the fountainhead of all avatars, and all avatars indeed manifest from him and through his first incarnation, the Mahavishnu, presiding over the material energy, and then they appear in the world. Hmm? And of course, we know that Krishna appears as an avatar as well. That's why, as we discussed yesterday, he's described in the first verse as anadi and adi at the same time. Because he appears to be an avatar, hmm, appearing in the world like other avatars. But uh, the text wants to say that he's um, more than an avatar. He is the adi. Hmm? He has, and he has anadi. <laughs> he has no beginning, and he's adi in the sense of being surrounded by super excellent uh, Lakshmis, and so on and so forth. So, um, along with, as I said, the somewhat revolutionary idea that is revealed primarily by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Not that it's not in the text; it is, but um, uh, he's drawing out some significance of the text that uh, may not have been focused on very carefully uh, by uh, previous acharyas in different lineages and so on and so forth. Bhagavat, Srimad Bhagavatam, for example, that is the central core of the revealed text for the Gaudiyas, was not understood to be such by other Vaishnav lineages. This was the um, insight of Jiva Goswami, and he's argued very well uh, about that. <clears throat> so, and then to draw from Bhagavatam these truths and so on, um, Brahma Samhita is helping us, as we described, with its focus on this particular point of Siddhanta. Hmm? Krishna's two Bhagavan Swayam, and he has to have a corresponding abode, and that abode must be beyond Vaikuntha. Of course, when we say beyond Vaikuntha, then we're in the land where there is no measurement. Hmm? As we've described earlier, we cannot even measure consciousness that we are constituted of. Consciousness is the measurer. Hmm? So how will you measure the measurer? Hmm? Um, and it can measure objective the objective world, well, to some extent. Hmm? But consciousness is beyond uh, measurement. Still now we're talking about abodes, places, 
when we say beyond measurement, we're talking about beyond time and space. Hmm? So if I speak to you about the idea that you exist, and we have done this, uh, ultimately as a unit of experiential existence, a subjective first-person unit of uh, uh, experience, hmm? being a part of experiential reality, you're different than the experienced reality that we, that is the objective world, matter, is experienced, and we experience it, and we should then expect experience to come out of non-experience. Hmm? So we've talked about this to some, le- some length, the idea that consciousness is not reducible to matter. Science is in modern times, we're trying to reduce consciousness to matter. Hmm? Now that it started to matter in science, because for about 200 years, it didn't matter in science, because science looked at the world from a particular point of view that's largely known as classical or Newtonian uh, physics. And in that world view, the world appears to be a closed system. All the forces within it work and are explainable and there's no room for any force from outside of the world to have an influence on the world. That's why some in the theistic scientific community centuries past um, changed their faith from Christianity, from being Christians to being deists. Deists have the view that God set up the world, but that's it. He doesn't have anything to do with it anymore because they couldn't figure out how there could be any supernatural influence on the natural world, which all seemed to be explainable um, in and of itself as a complete unit. Hmm? This has some very uh, disturbing ramifications. Hmm? The idea that the world is a closed system it means that it's it's entirely determined. That hmm? means there's absolutely no room for free will. That makes us all basically automatons and so forth. And so with the evidence, the observable evidence that gave rise to this thinking and the ability to work with the different forces and manipulate nature to create conveniences and so forth and so on, we find science, which was originally born as a Christian, started to become a deist, started to become an agnostic, hmm? um, uh, trying to become an atheist. Now, my course f- prediction is if it is to remain vital, it would have to become a mystic in due course. Hmm? And um, so... While consciousness didn't matter in a world that was a closed system, there was no place for it, so they just thought, well, it's just something, uh, consciousness, no no need to talk about it, even though it's us. (laughs) It's what we are, what gives value to the world, and so forth and so on. But in the early part of the 20th century, as most of you know, of course, some other findings about the physical world came to the surface the quantum perspective. And in the quantum, the quantum perspective, um, as per the original um, Copenhagen understanding of quantum theory, hmm, uh, is entirely uh, subjective. Hmm. And it also um, uh, uh, reveals that there's some indeterminacy in the world. From a classical point of view, it was entirely determined. Hmm? There's some uncertainty. Hmm? And, uh, and subjectivity comes into the picture. Hmm? Of course, many people, kind of new age people, have just kind of jumped on that and made all kinds of pseudoscience out of that, as if to say uh, quantum physics... Uh, does this or that, or says exactly the same thing as uh, Bhagavad Gita or whatnot. It really, really doesn't. However, my point is that consciousness 
again, surfaced as something that had to be dealt with. Hmm? Heisenberg, for example, said, we realize now that we don't study nature. We only study the nature of human experience of nature. That's as close as we can get to it. Hmm? So suddenly experience, which is what we are a unit of, starts to become important again as something you have to think about and fit it in and so forth. Given the preoccupation for 200 years with the classical physics paradigm and how it worked so well on a material level of providing through the help of technology conveniences and so forth and understandings of the natural world that seemed to improve the human condition, as Thomas Kuhn was uh, famous for bringing out, um, it's hard to change paradigms when one has been invested for quite some time. And a paradigm shift takes some time. Hmm? Um, so the paradigm of classical physics, even today people are in the scientific community are reluctant to let it go and quantum is like uh, uh, one famous physicist said anybody who says they understand quantum theory doesn't understand quantum theory <laughs> something like that so uh, there's reluctance to accept it because it kind of turns the world upside down at the same time of course it doesn't violate any of the th laws that were discovered in the, from the classical physics point of view. But it adds something, and it says, in a basic sense, that at the subatomic level, things work really differently. Hmm. In other words, everything is thought to be, in one sense, made out of atoms. Hmm. But the things that are made out, that, 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 that the atoms that things are made out of act differently unto themselves than they do in relation to the thing that is made out of them. The macro and the micro act so differently that um, it's bewildering to look at the micro. Uh, of course, Einstein, who, who very much resisted quantum theory for his whole life, he said, if this is true, physics is finished. Hmm? Uh, he was very reluctant. But the argument that, well, you know, we don't have to get too serious about this quantum perspective because it's really relative only to the on the on the microcosmic level. But Einstein himself said it's not such a good argument because the macro and the micro are so intertwined. It's hard to believe that it wouldn't be have an influence in the macro sense and so on and so forth. Um, people hold on to think, well, this is just some aberration, and you know, we'll work it out, and let's not give too much attention to it, and so. I bring this up because this has been a factor hmm, in trying to understand consciousness and make it fit into the previous paradigm, the classical physics worldview. You had to make it material somehow because there can't be any outside force. That, that just doesn't work. Hmm? But there's room from the quantum perspective to to posit based on empirical evidence, I mean hypothetically, and that's all we have is hypotheses in science about consciousness today, whether they be hypotheses that say hypotheses that say it's it's part of the natural world, or as I'm speaking about hypotheses that speak about it being other than the natural world, supernatural, not um, uh, a, a, a separate first-person ontology rather than a third person. Hmm? Uh, you know, like when we make in science experiments, we verify them objectively. That's kind of a third-person experimental setup. Hmm? Where, as opposed to my experience is like this and I can't verify that hmm? in an experiment. So why should we give that any credence? This is the way the, where the world has kind of gone, but in, the, in its thinking, but it, not in its acting. Hmm? Because, for example, we experience that we exist in a particular way, and that is entirely private. 
<laughs> how you exist and how you experience things, how you experience the same things I experience, you can only talk about it. Hmm? I can't experience that. It's totally your private, so to speak, existence. There may be some correspondence with mine as you, you talk about it, but hmm? it can't be verified. Hmm? So we experience that we exist, but we can't take it into a lab and prove that. Hmm? It's not verifiable, but we, but we don't wait for that to be done to carry on our day. Hmm? In other words, we act as if we exist, and uh, by that I mean to say we give a lot more credibility to first-person subjective experience than, uh, uh, than we think sometimes. Hmm? when we're influenced by some kind of scientific propaganda that, that if we can't prove it empirically, why should we believe in it? <laughs> why should we get up in the morning then and, uh, and, and do what we do? Hmm? So, um, as I say, this first-person subjective reality, it's uh, uh, be- becoming more of a, of a factor that we have to deal with in terms of understanding the world through methods that have been successful relatively for you know hundreds of years. Uh, so anyway, there are some in the quantum uh, field who have, through empirical observable evidence, posited credible hypotheses, and in philosophy also, hmm, as to the non-natural, if you like, or the supranatural nature of consciousness. Hmm? So, a bit of a segue here, uh, a tangent, um, uh, but the point I'm making is that this consciousness being irreducible, hmm, it can't be reduced to matter, hmm? therefore that starts to make it maybe sound more vague to us, but actually it's more substantial. The implication is that it does not conform to the laws of nature. Therefore, it is. Therefore, by it must be eternal. It must not have a beginning, and it must not have an end, because if it does not conform to the laws of nature, not being natural, then it's not within time and space. And time and space speak about beginnings and ends, which we're accustomed to. Owing to our identification with matter and and time and space and so forth, but if we step back from our limited experience of the nature of the nature of natural world, hmm, and just think about the nature of experience and so forth, we can we can come to a very logical um, um, basis for which. Uh, on which to answer an age-old question, is there, is there experience after death? Hmm? Now you have to think about the fact that you, you, you ha- there is no time that you have ever experienced no experience. There never will be either, obviously. <laughs> you can't experience that there's no experience. Hmm? You only have experience of experiencing. Hmm? What should lead us to believe that at some point we will not have experience? Uh, we are. We are. This is the idea of the Vedanta. You are experience. You are the experiencer, a unit of experiencing capacity, and so forth. So we move from the world of time and space, of forms and shapes, of cells and sentences. Hmm? to use an incarcerating kind of uh, example, hmm? as much as our material existence is kind of a confinement, we have a cell and we have a sentence, a certain amount of time hmm? to uh, reside behind the bars of our, our, our senses that only give us a partial understanding of the nature of, of being and so forth. Hmm? So if we're to move beyond forms 
and time, time and space, this kind of perhaps conjures up an idea of formless. Infinity is sometimes depicted as just kind of like formless. It's just, you can't really say anything about it. Hmm? This is probably what comes to most people's mind. You can talk about time and space, and then now you want to go beyond that. You become almost speechless. Hmm? The Vedanta says, that is about which we cannot speak. We're, go, we're going to, coming back, speech returns. We're going, the mind returns. Couldn't, couldn't quite, couldn't get there. Hmm? Can't do justice to it, and so forth. So all of these, there are a number of uh, Vedic aphorisms that seek to tell us in a very vague way, hmm? about the nature of existence beyond time and space. It's kind of awe-inspiring. It's quieting. There's no hustle and bustle there. We're not being threatened with non-existence. We're not struggling to exist. It, it, it conjures up a, a very strong sense of ah, relief. The struggle is over. You can cry hmm? joyfully. It's over. Hmm? I exist. Hmm? This is Brahman, hmm? the Great One. Hmm? Now we are talking about within that space, if you will, or beyond space and time infinity, consciousness, shapes and forms. We seem to be going backwards. <laughs> no, but we're going, we're going forward. Vaikuntham hmm? hmm? uh, is giving some shape. Hmm? What, what is the shape? The shape is a measure of affection. Affection is giving shape. You follow me? Because affection, for it to be expressed, requires another. You could have relief. Ah, oh, it's over. No more birth or death. I don't have to work anymore. I just sit. Hmm? Satisfied. Hmm? No need to move because I cannot see that there's anywhere to move to because I feel I'm everywhere. I'm consciousness. Hmm? Everything, there is nothing. Everything, sarvokalamidam brahma. There's just consciousness. I am consciousness. This is where the idea, I am God, I'm supernatural, comes from. Hmm? Uh, but this is a very static idea of God. Hmm? Just an eternal relief, hmm? so to speak. It doesn't speak about a dimension, a, 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 an, affectionate, an affectionate reality. Again, it's a non-exploitive reality, a non-criminal reality in a sense. Hmm? There's no taking, and therefore there's no one chasing after you, which is material existence. So it's ah, a relief. Hmm? I stopped taking and thinking the things that I took were mine. Hmm? I stopped that. Hmm? So now no one's chasing me, telling me it's not yours. Give it back. Hmm? I want to be paid for that. Hmm? So this, this is karma, the implications. So. So, but no real relief, no, no real affection there. Hmm? So we, we've been speaking about sat, chit, ananda. So again here I'm speaking about really two things, chit and ananda. Knowing, knowledge, 
and and loving, they really require a bit of another to be fully manifest. We can say there's affection in not taking. We can say there's affection in in or there, there's knowledge in knowing that which is ignorance. But is there any positive content to knowledge or to um, uh, to loving? So th- this is the idea of Vaikuntham now, where there has to be an object of knowledge for knowledge to have its full expression rather than simply objects that are illusory that are known to be unreal. Is that the sum and substance of knowledge? They are known to be unreal, and I am real. Hmm? I am consciousness. Consciousness is real. Hmm? I'm saying to develop that knowledge factor in its, uh, its, its potential within ourself. Hmm? In bhakti, we start to identify rather than with Brahman, with Paramatma, and ultimately Bhagwan. Paramatma is an object to know that is of a consciousness nature, and Bhagwan is an object to love that is constituted of consciousness, a significant like I like to say, consciousness other, hmm? in relation to whom, who, who is Ananda, hmm? in relation to whom our capacity for Ananda, in relationship, will we, we, we realize its, its fullest potential. So that's what these worlds, if you will, are about, and that's what we're hearing about, the world of Krishna, called Mahatpadam, but Mahatpadam generally means Vaikuntha, therefore it's qualified, Gokulakyam, but it's known as Gokul. This is different then. Hmm? It's above Vaikuntha. Of course, we're only using words here. There's not so many miles in the space that you go. This is beyond space, beyond measuring. Still, we invoke a unit of measurement to talk about these abodes. And that unit of measurement is rasa. Hmm? It speaks about the extent to which the environment, the consciousness environment, provides us intimacy with the object of love, with Bhagawan. So in Vaikuntha we find shanta, dasya, reverential love for Narayana. When we talk about Vaikuntha as a place with forms and buildings and uh, and so forth, hmm? what we're really talking about it seems to it starts to become sound smaller than Brahman, right? Which was like everywhere, infinite expanse, and so now you're talking about forms. It starts to look smaller, hmm? but what really we were talking about is an increase of affection. Do you understand me? If we study Vaikuntha, we find more affection there than in Brahman. Hmm? So it's actually bigger. Because as I I often say, um, you could have as big a space as you want. Let's say we put you you on the Sahara Desert. You can't see, you know, the end to north, south, east, or west. There's only sand everywhere. You got enough room? How do you feel? <laughs> you know, we'll bring you some water every now and then, but I mean, here you are. You, it's just like plenty of space. Hmm? And you're by yourself there. Hmm? After a while, you, you'd, you'd rather live in a hole with somebody else, somebody that you could love in a, in a small corner. Hmm? A small corner where there's affection is bigger hmm, than a huge space where there's no affection. Hmm. 
So Vaikuntha, it sounds by description at first to be smaller, but when we understand what we're talking about is an increase in the measure of affection, we realize we're talking about a bigger place. Whatever is found in Brahman with regard to the nature of affection that's present there, nature of knowledge that's present there, the, the quality of the being that's present there, hmm, it's more extensive in Vaikuntha. So this is what we're speaking about, an increase of Sat, Chit, and Ananda. That by necessity, uh, in the, in, by the limitations of language, we have to t talk about it. It starts to sound um, smaller. And when we go from Vaikuntha to Goloka, it gets even smaller. Hmm. It sounds even smaller. And uh, the word Gokul, used here, Gokulakim, it means cowshed. Hmm. It's not a big city. <laughs> With all, you can kind of think of Vaikuntha like it's got light rails, you know, going everywhere, and uh, it's described someone like airplanes and airports and all. It's a huge uh, metropolis. I, I live in California, in our uh, monastery. It's named Audaria. It's up in the hills in northern California. Some of you have been there. It's very beautiful, and I invite all of you to come and visit with me there sometime. Mm -hmm. So as you come down from there driving towards San Francisco to get to the airport, hmm, you come across the Golden Gate Bridge. It's a famous bridge. And out in the bay, there's a little island there called Alcatraz. <laughs> it's a famous prison. See? And then you cross the bridge and you enter into uh, San Francisco all that's going on there, it's so busy, and lights, and parties, and everything like that. And the people in Alcatraz, they don't know anything about it. They heard about it, but, you know, still, they were there, of course, but now they're in Alcatraz. I'm just using it as an example. But in Alcatraz, when I make the drive, I want to say, from Audaria, I think, I'm leaving Goloka, which is far exceeds San Francisco, even though it's just a forest. Hmm? It's a hidden place. It's much smaller than San Francisco. Oh, but it's much bigger, hmm? much more affectionate hmm? in its dealings and beautiful, and there are cows there. No cows allowed in San Francisco. Uh, but there are by Kunta Court. But <laughs> so anyway, you drive down, and we come down out of the forest, and you start to come into the city and so forth, and you come into... Santa Rosa and uh, the North Bay, kind of like Ayodhya and Ramdam, and then you hit the bridge, and then you're going into Vaikuntha, and there's a material world over there, Alcatraz. Hmm. Hmm. It's such a tiny little place. <laughs> huh? hmm. And in between Alcatraz and San Francisco and, and uh, Audaria, Vaikuntha and Goloka, there's, there's the bay. Brahman, hmm. there it is, <laughs> something like that. So we could take you out of Alcatraz and drop you in the bay. That might be, ah, I'm out of Alcatraz. What do I do now? <laughs> something like that. Uh, real success means to get to the shore, hmm? the shore of Vaikuntha, and from there to Goloka, to, to Audaria, something like that. So... It's a very beautiful graphic. I've thought sometimes of taking, having a, like a pilgrimage and going, you know, from Aldaria to, to the bay to visit Alcatraz and San Francisco and <laughs> like this and, you know, take the Bhagavatam along the way and speak about it. Hmm? <laughs> uh, you get some handle on transcendental uh, geography. Hmm? But again, basically these places, now we're talking about the place of Krishna, it is, it is a place constituted of, of concentrated affection, hmm? an affectionate in, in, in environment. And the more the affection, the bigger the place. Hmm? But again, as we were speaking the other day, the more the affection, the more the, the way in which the, the more the ruler appears to be not a ruler. And so... Uh, from Vaikuntha, Narayan is on the throne, he's got the forearms and so forth. And Krishna's in the cowshed. Hmm? 
getting his name from Gargamuni in the cowshed in the Leela, along with his brother Balaram and so forth. Hmm? It appears to be a small place, but if we study the nature of it, we find it's very affectionate there. The measure of the affection there is far greater than we find in, in Vaikuntha. In Vaikuntha we find Shanta, as I said, Dasya. If we go from there to Ayodhya, Ayodhya is kind of in between. There is Ramdam, the abode of Ramchandra. Hmm? And Ram has his consort Sita. Hmm? He has his brothers, Lakshman, Shatrugna, Bharat, and so forth. And he has his servitor, Hanuman, Kijai. Hmm? So when we look at Vaikuntha, we see some, we look at Ram's abode, Ayodhya, we find a, there are greater, the greater, some greater measure of affection there than we find in Vaikuntha. In Vaikuntha we have Dasya, or Dasya, Shantan, half, half of Sakya, some reverential friendship, just like a chauffeur sometimes becomes a little friendly with, the, with his, uh, uh, his boss. Hmm? The boss might say, "What do you think? What should I should I invest in uh, in in gold, or shall I invest in uh, securities? What is your opinion? I don't know, boss. Uh, maybe maybe don't invest at all. <laughs> Something like so, so. This is Vaikuntha, as high as it, as close as we get to Narayan, the center. Hmm? We go to Ayodhya. We see something different there. We see Ram. He's got two arms." Hmm? He's human-like. His Leela is human-like. It has ups and downs. Narayan's Leela has only... He's God. He's in control. There are no problems. Hmm? All problems solved. In a sense, love solves all problems. But if we distill love more, we find there are problems inside of the no problems. Hmm? <laughs> yeah. uh, and so, such is the nature of love. Rupa Goswami said, Love moves like a snake. Not like this, but like this. She loves me, she loves me not. She loves me, she loves me not. Union and separation. Union and separation. So we go to Ayodhya, Ram, Ram Lila. We find it's human-like, which is more like love. Hmm? This reverential love in human society, it's not like love. You understand what I'm saying? When we have reverential love in human society, hmm, it's thought that you're leaving other ideas, local ideas of love behind. Hmm? It's thought to be bigger, but it's thought almost to be supernatural. Do you understand? Reverential love. I mean, love the country and I will sacrifice my family, my loved ones. I'll risk my life for that. And then you become bigger. You become a hero or a heroine and you leave the world and you're celebrated and you're kind of supernatural. You're kind of a myth. He wasn't human. Something like that. So this reverential love is... It's like otherworldly. Hmm? It kind of goes in that direction. Vaikuntam is in total, totally reverential love. Hmm? Totally otherworldly. Hmm? When we go to Ayodhya, love starts to take on a worldly appearance hmm? in relation to Ram. But it's not going down, it's going, going up because the object is the same. It's Bhagwan. Hmm? So, the reverse is true. While in material life, the reverential love is kind of almost beyond humanity, almost supernatural. How could he do it? Hmm? When we go on the other side, the reverential love is only the base. Hmm? And from there, love goes on to Sakya, Mabatsalya, Madhurdya, hmm? parental love, friendly love, Romantic love in relation to Bhagwan. So we see some of these elements in Ayodhya. We see Ram has his wife Sita. Hmm? 
But he has brothers. Narayan doesn't have any brothers who have intimate, friendly relationship with him. Hmm? So we see Sakya there. We see also a different kind of Madhurdya, a little different than by, than by Kunta. Hmm? We see Vatsalya. Narayan doesn't have a father and a mother in Vaikuntha. That would be what? Narayan is the source of everything. How could he have a father or a mother? But Ram has a father. Ram has a mother. So we see some Vatsalya there. Hmm? But if we study carefully, we see there's no opportunity for us to go there and experience Sakya or Vatsalya or Madhurya. Hmm? Those are for particular associates of Ram hmm? that are constituted of Surup Shakti. The way to enter Ayodhya, that is shown by Hanuman, by Dasya. Hmm? But in the human-like Leela of Ram. And in that Leela, because we see something we don't see in Vaikuntha, we see Sakya, the full measure of this. We see uh, uh, Vatsalya. It, it, it allows us to think such thing goes on hmm? in, in, in the spiritual dimension. It's pointing towards Golok. Ramchandra's Leela is kind of, in this way, pointing towards the possibility of Golok, which is a very, it's a remote and distant possibility that we would, how could we think that, 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 that human-like love, with all of its shortcomings and so forth, compared to reverential love and the sacrifice that's involved, that it could have its place, not only in the spiritual world, but on the upper end. Hmm? And, and uh, everything is reversed out and so forth. Hmm? Therefore, it's a very secret place, as this book teaches. We have Bajaj, Sveta, Dvipam, Tamham, Golokumitiyam. Very rarely attained. Very few people know about that. Brahma's trying to inform us about that place. Therefore, he says, Gokulakya Mahatpadam. You've heard of Mahatpadam, the great Vaikuntham. Hmm? He said, yes, this is that, but something more. And it's called Gokul. It's called the cowshed. Hmm? You have to think, think about, <laughs> about that. This is the idea. And so he, he starts to explain it. He says that hmm? it's shaped like a lotus. Hmm? And there are different compartments in it. And the compartments are the different leaves on the lotus for different kinds of love. For different kinds of devotees. And in the center of the lotus, there Krishna is, is, is seated. And it says, Tatkani Karnikaram Tadhama Tadanam Tamshasamavan. And Balaram is introduced. We heard about Krishna. Now Balaram is introduced. In the second verse, it says, In this existential reality called Gokul. Hmm? This is manifested by Balaram. Hmm? He presides over one uh, elemental constituent of that internal Shakti, Swarup Shakti, that governs the Leela, hmm? called Sandini, the existential aspect of, uh, of uh, Surup Shakti. Hmm? Sandini. It means like Sat, like existence, but it's a super existence as we're hearing about. <laughs> so this Balaram is the ground of, of being. Hmm? We'll go on and we'll hear that just as this Balaram manifests the, the Dham, hmm? for the pleasure of Krishna's leelas, so a portion of himself, turning the other way, manifests the material world. Hmm? So he is the egoic source, if you will. Hmm? Uh, identity, being, Balram. Hmm? With regard to, to bhakti, what is it? 
Mul Balram. Bhakta Abhiman, Mul Balram. The Mul of our sense of, of being a devotee has its source in Balaram. Balaram is Krishna, but he's the first expansion of Krishna that is overwhelmingly possessed of the disposition and emotions of a servant of Krishna. You take God and then you take, probably used to call Krishna the Supreme Personality of God had served and Balaram, the personality of God, its servitor. So he manifests the whole playground for Krishna's pastimes. Hmm? Of course, it's not something that happens in time, but he is the underlying, the, the presiding deity over the uh, uh, existence called Golok. Hmm? All of the forms there, hmm? and so forth. He manifests the playground. This is one example of how this Balaram is, 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 the, is, the, is the, the ideal and of, of service to Krishna. He is the embodiment of service from top to bottom. He manifests the abode, the clothes for Krishna, the, all, all the items and so forth. These are all arranged by him. Hmm? And of course, Balaram is... The source, Akanda Guru Tattva. This is where the, the, the Guru is, in this sense, a manifestation of Balaram or Nityananda Prabhu in Gaur because he is to be served because he or she sets an example of how to serve. Sometimes say people say, well, could I be the Guru? So we're asking that, we're, 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 we're encouraging you, please be the guru, but please know what it means to be the guru also. Hmm? Because the guru is one who teaches, and in bhakti, he or she teaches how to serve. Hmm? So has to be a good servant hmm? to teach how to serve. Hmm? This takes some of the fear out of the idea of submitting to the guru. Hmm? Sounds a bit ominous. Submit to the guru, surrender to the guru, but the guru is just a servant. Hmm? It's like in Madhavan, our ashram in Costa Rica. Hmm. When we first went there and we were looking at the, at the property, it was all just a jungle, just mountain jungle everywhere. Hmm? No roads or anything, no buildings. And our uh, tour guide was the previous owner, hmm? Donnie Mel. He's in his 70s and he was taking us through the jungle, hiking and walking everywhere and showing us that this is this kind of tree and you can get this kind of medicine here from this, this leaf and there's a spring over here, come. And you go through, there's a little water and it's a little flat over there. We go through, so I could put a building there. So, and he knew everything like this. He was our, our like shaman guide. Hmm? The guru is something like that. Hmm? Something like that. And you can do this here and you can do this here. Hmm? Uh, but he doesn't think himself very important. Hmm? Showing the way, and then you go, yes, go, go. Yeah. Meet with Krishna. Hmm? Something like that. <laughs> so he has to be, she has to be good servant, to teach service. So if you have to submit to someone who's a servant, that doesn't sound so ominous, to learn how to serve. Hmm? Hmm. And as I said earlier also, uh, other days, Krishna, of course, being the center, serving everywhere, like the stomach is serving by redistributing the food in a way that no other organ can. Hmm? So this Balaram, anyway, he, the, he, we sometimes say the guru is a manifestation of Balaram, means that he is representing Krishna, he should be treated like, like that, but he is showing how to serve Krishna. Hmm? So he is non-different from Krishna, but different from Krishna. Sakshadharitvena samasta shastriya. Kintu tasya. He's directly Krishna, the scripture says, but kintu prabhoyapriyaiva tasya. He's a servant of Krishna. A particular kind of service he embodies. And so this is a deeper understanding of the Guru than the Guru is directly God. This is a progressive understanding that we'll come to. As we progress, we also understand the Guru is embodiment of a particular bhava in relation to Krishna. Hmm? 
We were talking this about a little bit, little bit about this um, last night, the question about Rupanuga and so forth. So, at any rate, this idea is, for example, Pujapatrita Maharaj used to say, that Golokam, that place being described here, that is a land of gurus. The ground is our guru there. This is the idea. It all manifests by Balaram. The sands there, they are Raman. Raman Riti. These guys... This is where Prabhupada built his temple as a place, but it means that the, the, the ground is alive and full of love, Ramana. It's a loving, loving ground of being, not a static ground of being, but a loving, moving ground of being. It's a moving ground that, that, that is that is stable nonetheless. You, know, you want, now the ground's moving underneath our feet and it's disconcerting. Hmm? So we want to get on solid ground. I'm Brahman. Hmm? But after a while, you know, it gets a little tiring. So the ground in Golok is moving. Hmm? But you can't fall down on that ground. It's kind of making you dance. Hmm? It's like a, that's, it's like a, one of those, you know, you go to the airport and it's a moving thing like that. It moves and you move on it. Hmm? And you go faster in this way. You can, you can just dance along, you know, like that. You can make big steps and something like that. <laughs> so, so, so such is the ground of, uh, uh, of being in a guru acquaintance with this ground. Hmm? Hmm? Guru is then the foundation that our spiritual life is uh, is built on. We want to be grounded in Guru Bhakti. Guru Bhakti is part of Krishna Bhakti. You cannot do Krishna Bhakti without doing Guru Bhakti. Therefore, Ado Guru Vashraya, first thing listed in the limbs of the body of Krishna Bhakti is Guru Bhakti. Take shelter of the Guru, sit before the Guru, hear from the Guru. When you've heard enough and you, you're charmed and so forth, compelled, then siksha diksha, taking the initiation, taking siksha, serving affectionately, meeting others, acquaintances of the guru, more advanced disciples than myself of the guru, who I might also serve and learn something from. This is sadhuvart manivartante. So all this precedes, this is the beginning of Krishna Bhakti. So the Guru Bhakti is within Krishna Bhakti. Hmm? Of course, Jiva Goswami makes a nice point in his Bhakti Sandarbha. He says that some devotees, they reverse this out and they make Guru Bhakti the, the Angi, the body, and Krishna Bhakti the Anga. Hmm? Normally, Guru Bhakti is a limb of the body of Krishna Bhakti. But they make Krishna Bhakti the limb of the body of Guru Bhakti. Hmm? And he says, and Krishna likes this even more. Hmm. This is very, uh, so they may forego even certain limbs of Krishna Bhakti for serving the guru, meeting the guru's whatever minimal necessities for preaching or whatever it may be and so forth. Hmm? Hmm. This is a, uh, he says, a very uh, uh, exceptional and extraordinary idea. Hmm. So, to be attached to our guru, to do guru bhakti, hmm. nothing will be lost in this. Hmm. Pujapad Sridhar Marsh once said, if in your bhajan life you get the darshan of Krishna, hmm, then you sh- and he asks you for some service, you should say, wait a minute. I've asked my guru first. <laughs> Is that the guy you were talking about? <laughs> yeah, okay. And I will uh, something like that. Something like that. Hmm. There are stories of Vaikuntha, you know, airplane, so to speak, coming in to pick up the devotee to take, and he said he didn't have time. He has some so much service for his guru and so forth. Hmm. 
This is where to pay the most attention. This is how Guru, how Krishna has come to us most prominently in the form of the Guru. And he or she, as I say, represents the very ground of, of being that Golok is made out of, is made out of service. Hmm? This is a world made out of exploitation, so it really is small. Hmm? Very small and confining. A world made out of giving, how big will that be? Pujapad Sridhar once told me, if you want to understand Golok, think like this. Go to the train station in Calcutta, the famous Howrah station. If you go to the train station there and the train stops, thousands of people will run to get on the train, crashing to get on like it's just a madhouse. So many people trying to get on, let me first, before the train takes off. You know, India's a crowded, overpopulated place and so forth. Hmm? So, he said, imagine if you were to go to the train station, Howrah station, the train pulled up, stopped, and everybody said, you first. No, you first. No, no you first. He said, Golok is like this. Hmm? It's a very generous uh, environment, uh, serving environment, and the Guru embodies that. Balaram has manifest that. Hmm? So with that, we'll proceed to give... Uh, initiation to one of our students. Please come. Somebody you all know very well here. Somebody who speaks very loudly on behalf of a guru in a way that sometimes might disturb you. <laughs> but she only wants service for, for her guru. So it's okay. You have to tolerate that. <laughs> sometimes, you know, the you have to be a little forceful. Want, want it to be right. Want it to be done nicely. And that, not only in service to the Guru, but to all of the servitors and students and friends of the Guru, also like all of you. Hmm? So, our friend here has been very instrumental, as you know, in organizing these festivals as our second year in this location, and I think it's very nice. What do you think? It's been a nice environment. And so now she's asking me, Gurmash, you must come for two weeks next year. Hmm? So you can, you can blame her or thank her, whatever, however you, <laughs> whatever you think the experience is. Hmm? So you know about all these things, about no intoxication, gambling, and all that. Illicit sex, and uh, yep, and show kindness to other living beings. Mm. Be sure and observe that, as you have been for so many years. And here's the tapa. Jai Shri Krishna, and Tilak. Om Kishalaya Namaha. Hey. Very nice. So how many rounds will you chant? Okay, very good. So I heard one rumor the other day that someone was saying that Tripurari Marsh is there, but he's giving out initiation and um, he's not asking people to chant 16 rounds. He said, he's asking them to chant less. I said, how do they know? That's between me and my students. Of course, these things are all details, as you, as you know. Hmm? So, yeah, you've got your counter beads. All right, so let me give you the mantra. Om Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna. And then, Diksha Mantra, main mantras. Om Krishnaya Govindaya Gopirana Balabhaya Saha. And you come after this, I'll give you other mantras, okay? Alright, so. 
And your name is Raman, Raman Reti Devi. Okay. Raman Reti Ki Jai. We talked about that, so we know the meaning. Right? This is the, the ground of ecstatic spiritual being. Hmm? So it's very nice to sit with you again this morning, and uh, um, we'll gather again this evening for questions and answers. And I'll be leaving early in the morning. So it's been a pleasure to be with you. See you this afternoon. Hare Krishna. Bhaktabindaki jai, Govind Premanandi, Vibhu.